electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thank you, Dom and Kelly. Another red-hot inflation print sending stocks on a wild ride today, with the Dow trading in a nearly 500-point range, currently near the higher end right now. The most important hour of trading starts now. Welcome, everyone, to Closing Bell. I'm Sarah Eisen. Take a look at where we stand in the market right now. S&P positive. The Nasdaq also leading few U-turns we've seen in today's session, up four-tenths of one percent. It's consumer discretionary stocks that are leading the charge. Tesla, Domino's, Bath & Body Works, the winners there. The uh, losers on the day, industrials, financials, and communication services, seeing that yield curve invert, that's hurting the banks. Here's a live look at the lagging sectors that I just mentioned. I said the financials, but look what else is there. Some of the, some of the defensive groups like healthcare and real estate near the bottom of the pack today. We've got the big banks starting to report earnings tomorrow. We're going to have more on that for you straight ahead. Also coming up on today's show, we're going to talk about today's hotter than expected inflation print and the White House response with the Deputy Treasury Secretary, Wally Adiemo, later on in the hour. Let's get straight, though, to the market reaction. Mike Santoli here with the dashboard. Mike, what are you watching as far as this kind of crazy reaction all over the place. Equity market obviously had the quick reflex move lower, now trying to play it off like, well, we kind of saw this coming, or perhaps there's nothing incompatible as rough as the CPI report was, with it being the peak month for inflation, plus a lot of damage done. So here we are, uh, clearly kind of indecisive on a couple levels. We've been playing out for a couple of weeks. It does not, this rally reached the threshold where we'd say we reversed this trend. On the other hand, you have this. Uh, you know, we kind of managed to hold above those mid-June lows. Also, where we're trading right now is a level that was first seen intraday right in here, May 20th. So it's not as if we're unfamiliar, kind of chopping around uh, the growth areas of the market, carrying things right now. Longer-term yields are going down. Now, a lot of attention on the two versus 10-year Treasury yield curve today. It is very deeply negative. Take a look at the three-month 10-year. This is the one the Fed sort of points to as the more perhaps reliable uh, precursor to a recession. This is a 20-year look at this. So here's zero. Uh, when have we gone below zero? Right here, 06, year and a half before the uh, recession uh, officially started. And right here, in summer of 2019, I'm going to put an asterisk there. I'm not saying it foresaw the COVID uh, recession coming, at least not in that timely way. The point is, you have room to go, but it's a function of just the months passing as well as the Fed doing what we expect it now to do. A three-month yield is going to adjust higher uh, pretty rapidly. So therefore, it's kind of on a collision course with zero if the Fed does what we expect it to do. That in itself, though, doesn't necessarily start the clock beating too loudly for a recession. We'll have to see. Right. And so that, now we get, thank you, Mike, stick around to Steve Leisman on what that inflation read does mean for the Fed. And we're seeing expectations, Steve, change here. Yeah, pretty dramatically, uh, Sarah. Uh, uh, there's a huge surge, by the way, in the outlook for a 100 basis point hike uh, after Atlanta Fed President uh, Rafael Bostic saying that uh, everything is in play when asked if the Fed could do more than 75 basis points. Uh, this contrasts with his uh, comments on Monday where he said it was not his base case to do more than 75. But, of course, the hot CPI number changed his view and uh, seems to have uh, also changed the market's view. Take a look. We were at a 3% probability of a 100% hike 
uh, before the CPI. After the CPI, it went to 38%. After the base book came out and Bostic spoke, it's now the odds-on choice. That is to say, uh, the probability now, by the way, of a 75 hike in September, now 51%. So put it all together, the odds-on bet of the market is for an astonishing 175 basis points of tightening over the next two months. The move also coincides with a decidedly stagflationary base book. Two points start out to me. Substantial price increases reported across all districts and five districts reporting increased risk of recession. Meanwhile, just moments ago, Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin on the wire saying that the June CPI report strengthens the case of the Fed to be resolute on inflation and the Fed should focus on inflation, not growth. Sarah, that appears to be the case of what's happening right now. Steve Leisman, thank you. Keep us posted. We'll continue the conversation now with Neil Dudda from Renaissance Macro Research. Mike Santoli still with us. Think they'll go 100 basis points? Anything's possible. Maybe there'll be a Wall Street Journal article coming out the weekend before and that we'll find out. Right, because, he, because the last time Fed Chair Powell said it's reasonable to expect 50 or 75 at the next meeting, although the time before that, he said it's we're only looking at 50. So I guess they're recalibrating as they get this inflation data. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to me, the issue isn't so much that it's that they sort of find these data points and it's kind of like ex post justification for stuff they've already decided they wanted to do. So Powell one one time looks at ECI and that's why we're starting the tapering clock sooner. Then it's UMISH and five to 10 year inflation expectations. I don't think they really have a coherent strategy, um, but I do think the um, Wait a second. That, that's not fair. They've told us that it's it's all about inflation right now. Well, I mean, and now they we're getting a hotter number. They haven't told us exactly how expeditiously they want to move up to neutral. I think the more important point, really, for investors, is that the Fed basically has two options, uh, two doors they can walk through. Behind door number one is recession, and behind door number two is let inflation expectations drift higher. They've told us pretty clearly that they would prefer, if you have to make a mistake, number one. you'd go through door number one. And that, to me, is the most relevant thing for investors. So, um, you know, I mean, for example, I think, the, I think the economy could be, frankly, on a glide path towards, uh, towards contraction. And really, the only thing left to go at this point is the labor market. We know that uh, initial claims are picking up modestly. Um, I think some increase in the unemployment rate at this point is inevitable. Um, and we know that hiring intentions are declining. Uh, so I think there's reason to think that employment begins to contract outright at some point later this year. Um, and again, the Fed is still in an aggressive posture against inflation. That's not exactly a good recipe uh, for risk appetite. Mike, is it, is it already in the market, though? Uh, I doubt all of that is, is fully in the market at this point. Um, if you had to kind of psychoanalyze the Fed, the market reaction today. I think part of it is a let's get this over with attitude. So there's still this clinging to this idea that if we go 100 basis points in July, that it represents a front loading of what ultimately is going to be done uh, in total by the Fed. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm saying this is the right. way you can, you can kind of uh, plot the story out. And it makes it seem like we do it in July. We kind of get free a little bit of the macro whipsaw because we're through the CPI number. There's no meeting in August. Who knows what can happen after that? September's far enough away for the purpose of equity traders to say, let's focus on earnings and see if that's priced in for the moment. Well, the, the way I interpret the market action today is 
is it, it, we went from the inflation high rates sort of fear off that hotter CPI number to the recession fear, right? Treasury yields turned around at least at the long end. The dollar was stronger off the inflation number. It's now weaker. So everything became about the recession yield. What, what are we looking at? You said it, or contraction. How deep now? Maybe that's the question. We go from what kind of recession? Well, I think a modest recession is is likely. I mean, I, it, there's no significant macro imbalance in the economy outside of like household spending on durable goods. But, you know, I mean, look, the euro dollar futures market is pricing in, I think, I mean, Mike can correct me if I'm wrong, I think four 25 basis point rate cuts next year at this point. Yeah. So to me, I don't know if they do that. I mean, I think... <laughs> The Fed probably won't be high, uh, cutting that much in 2023, and there could be two reasons why that is. Maybe I'm wrong about the growth outlook and growth is holding up a little bit better. Or what I think is more likely is that the Fed has a more hawkish reaction function than, 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 than people believe. Um, you know, as I said, that inflation just stays high and sticky. I think they need to be really sure about inflation coming off the boil before they, come, before they give the market a pivot of any kind, because they have been so far off sides the inflation story that, you know, they have to compensate for that big miss, right, in, in, in a way. And that means, to me, holding on to a more hawkish posture for longer, probably past the expiration date. And I, that's why I say it. To me, it's, it's a reason to be cautious on the, uh, on the outlook for equities. Tech stocks are, are interesting today, Mike, in yeah. light of all of this. There's kind of a split. Communication services are getting hit, but some of these consumer discretionary names, including Tesla, are higher on the day. Amazon has also turned around and is now higher. These are ones that tend to get hit on the rate, the rate rise concerns. Well, yeah. What rate are we going to talk about? So if they're long durations, if we want to say that they really trade off of, of, of bond yields, which yield does matters? I, I try to say that that's a much looser connection than, than is popularly, uh, you know, kind of put, put out there, that it's just about the rate story. It's also about they're not really as cyclical as the rest of the market. So if, we're, if we're all of a sudden the technology's somewhat defensive qualities are starting to matter more, that's part of the story as well. But they're just down the most. They let us into this thing, and we'll see if that's where the money flows in. Today we got the, these Microsoft Netflix headlines. They may not be hurting uh, sentiment toward those couple of stocks as well. Yeah, and there's also this idea that we've seen the worst of it, today. today's number. We've, we've said that That's before right. yeah. and been fooled, but if you look at some of these commodity prices, they really have rolled over from oil to copper to, to wheat prices. Sure, I mean, an old story. I mean uh, the market has admittedly priced in a lot of downside, but we haven't actually seen the weakness in the real economy yet. I mean, the labor markets have been holding up. You have to kind of really peel back the, the onion to see some weakness in the job market. So... Um, and I think that's part of the challenge. That's the tension right now is that the economy isn't slowing as much as, you know, people just wanted to get it over with, as Mike was putting out. That's a difficult situation because the growth, the growth numbers haven't actually cracked as far as the labor markets are concerned. Not yet, according to you. Neil Dutta, thank you. Mike Santoli, I'll see you later for the Market Zone. I mentioned tech stocks. They are well off their lows today after initially sinking on that CPI report. Netflix also getting a late session rally on news of a new partnership with Microsoft. We're going to talk to analyst Mark Mahaney about his latest read on the stocks in that sector, winning bets into earnings season. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC, Dow down 100 points. Again, we were down 466 at the low, so some nice recovery here. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? 
AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. Saving, researching, investing. Now you can take those investments to the next level with Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. I have an investment account with Schwab and a 401k with Fidelity, and I use Yahoo Finance to consolidate them so it's incredibly easy to manage. They've been helping great investors like you for over 25 years. So whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking to level up, Yahoo Finance can simplify things, putting all your tools and data in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a 360-degree look at the financial news cycle, from breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, and customizable charts. They've got you covered. You can see all of your 401k and other investments by securely linking your brokerage accounts. Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you see your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective helps smart investors become even better. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Check out today's stealth mover. It's SeaWorld. KeyBank downgrading that stock to sector weight from overweight, citing the impact of economic concerns. The stock is down about 1.5%. Check out shares of Netflix getting a late session pop here after the company said it is partnering with Microsoft for its new ad-supported service. Joining us now, Mark Mahaney from Evercore. ISI to talk Netflix and other stocks. It also reports that, that Comcast and our parent company and Alphabet were in the running here. What do you think about the Microsoft partnership on Netflix ads? There, I was surprised. I wouldn't have expected, and I think most people are, that they would have expect, that they would have picked uh, Microsoft as their global uh, advertising partner. Now, Microsoft does have a global advertising presence, but it's uh, probably fair to say it pales in comparison to Google. So they must have gotten some really great terms from Microsoft. That's my guess. Everybody wanted to partner with uh, with Netflix. I think Netflix is going to be successful rolling out an offering, but I don't think it's going to be material to the story and therefore not uh, an investable part of the story for another year or two. I think about Netflix as a 2024 long, not now and not next year. So Netflix in the statement says it's very early days, to your point. Uh, but our long-term goal is clear, more choice for consumers and a premium better than linear TV brand experience for advertisers. Mark, so what, what, what does that look like, even in the long uh, run, think, for Netflix in terms of revenue? Hey, uh, Sarah, I think this is great. I, you know, I'm a huge fan of um, uh, Netflix's management team. I, I think they've, done, they've been phenomenally visionary. I, I think they missed this one. I think they should have you know, entered into the advertising market maybe a year or two ago, but th that's okay. They've got a large platform of 220 million users, and you bring in a lower price plan that's ad supported. You're gonna. There's so many wins in here for Netflix if they execute well, and this is gonna take time. But there's so many wins here. You're gonna reduce churn. You're gonna be able to bring in more uh, subscribers that are very price sensitive. And we've seen price sensitivity rise in our surveys that we've done on Netflix over the years in North America and in international markets. And you're gonna help them grow in parts of the world where AVOD offerings, uh, you know, advertising video on demand offerings are much stronger than in North America. And I'm talking about Asia Pacific, which has been a growth challenge for Netflix. So I see a lot of wins here. Uh, I think the ARPU, we've, there's plenty of evidence here that they can generate really nice ad, uh, revenue, uh, ad revenue per user. A lot of wins, it's gonna take some time, uh, but uh, you know, my guess is that it'll work out for Netflix. I just don't think you can invest in that yet. Yeah, I mean, the stock is down 70%. So visionary management is, is great until, you know, something like this has happened where they've seen their first subscriber loss and the market's totally turned. 
Mark, of all of your of all of your tech picks, and I know you've liked Amazon, you've liked Spotify, a, a lot of these companies. Which which one do you think just has a ridiculous valuation right now where you would buy? Well, if I was going to pick one right now to buy, it would be Amazon. It's not just because of Prime Day, although I think that helps. This is kind of a less worse call. So look, you, you had your uh, commentators earlier talking about we're starting to see um, some cost inflation come down. Uh, and I'm talking about uh, you know fuel costs, shipping costs. As those come down, like that was the big whammy against Amazon in the first half of the year. So there's a less worse thesis that'll play out on Amazon. You're now going to be moving beyond the tough COVID comps. So you've got a revenue acceleration story in the back half of the year as they start um, ter- uh, going after all that overstaffing and overbuilding that they've had. You're going to get better capacity utilization. So I think you get margin recovery, revenue growth acceleration on a stock that's 30 to 40 percent below its average forward multiple. Like to me, this is classic DHQ, dislocated high quality company. If you're going to buy one stock and be willing to weather, you know, the near term potential recession risk. To me, it's Amazon. It's the most successfully diversified consumer tech company out there. Okay, but I just want to say you've said you've said that before, and it's still it's now trading at a post-COVID low. So, so something is yep. not clicking. They're worried about the economy, right. IT spend, retail. There, there, there is are a lot Amazon of recession-proof? No yeah, no, it's not. It's not recession-proof. And so, look, we just lowered our. I thought broadly, what you need to have is one or two rounds of estimates cuts. You know, we did our best shot at cutting estimates aggressively across the Internet space last week. And then you also need real signs of uh, inflation moderation or interest rate uh, expectations peaking. We're not there yet. But when you get that and, you know, Sarah, it's like three months out, it's six months out. Timing it is almost impossible. I just can. I've got a high quality asset. When all this is said and done, it's going to be the leading global online retailer. It's going to be the leading cloud computing company and one of the largest advertising assets in the world. And they still have new growth initiatives out there. And I'm particularly interested in this shipping elasticity concept. So, yeah, I'm sticking with Amazon. It hasn't worked yet year to date. But, you know, this is the opportunities when these companies are most dislocated. You make money buying high quality companies when they're dislocated. I think that's Amazon. All right, Mark, thank you. We'll have you back soon. I want to talk more tech earnings as we gear up for that. Mark Mahaney, let's check in on the markets right now. Down 74 points here on the Dow. Again, with the S&P 500, we're positive, and that is thanks to consumer discretionary energy, which is working today. Staples, utility, and now technology is higher. Industrials and financials bringing up the rear in the market. The Nasdaq comp, it's up about a third of 1%. Still ahead, Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adiemo with the administration's response to today's hotter inflation read. Plus, why the CEO of Chevron told me inflation could be around for longer than you may think. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 
S&P goes negative as we continue this up and down day on Wall Street. CNBC's list of the top states for business is out. North Carolina taking the crown this year. And in today's big picture, we are looking at the surprising financial strength that states are seeing across the board. Scott Cohn here with that for a change. Scott, how does it look? It's, it's really something, Sarah, and it's pretty much uh, every state. North Carolina's uh, strongest category is its economy, and that includes really, really strong state finances. In fact, they just passed a bipartisan state budget that had room for a 4% teacher pay raise, adding to the state rainy day fund, a new billion-dollar inflation reserve fund, and money for state infrastructure projects uh, to prepare more sites for development. This last budget that I signed, there's more investment to develop more because we're running out of them, because we have so many businesses that are interested in coming to North Carolina and expanding here. North Carolina is not the only state that's rolling in dough. The National Association of State Budget Officers says 49 states have beaten their revenue forecast for this fiscal year. Wyoming might have as well, but its forecasts were made before COVID. Nationwide, state spending up 13.6% this fiscal year. That is the biggest jump in more than 40 years. COVID relief money, a big reason, but also more sales tax and corporate tax money. Some of that, of course, is due to inflation. This year's most improved state uh, is Oregon. It jumped 17 spots to number 18 overall, also largely because of its economy, including 400 million extra dollars from tax payments. But state economist Josh Lehner says don't get too comfy with all of this. He wrote last month, some of these really strong gains are clearly temporary and will either fall or more likely crash back to earth. Uh, so it's something that we're going to keep watching uh, as we do these top states for business study. This, by the way, is not just a day at the beach. There is a huge cr uh, crew of people uh, behind the scenes that work on all of this here in North Carolina, back in Englewood Cliffs. I would love to be able to thank every one of them. Special shout out, though, to our producers this year, Harriet Taylor and Katie Young, who put up with me for all these many weeks. Uh, you can see all of the handiwork and see where your state ranks. Read how we come up with all of this at topstates.cnbc.com. That's top states for 2022, guys. No, it's, it's a great effort, Scott. Thank you very much. And, and good to hear the good news on the, on the surpluses as well. Scott Cohn. Another hot inflation report this morning. Up next, the Deputy Treasury Secretary of the U.S., Wally Adiemo, on what else the White House can do, if anything, to fight these soaring consumer prices. We'll be right back. Some breaking news out of Washington. Let's get to Kayla Tausche. Kayla. Well, Sarah, the Biden administration has ruled out for now waiving the Jones Act to allow more ships to transport refined products up the East Coast. That's according to my sources. And it comes as the administration weighs policy actions to lower gas prices and increase domestic supply. Executives requested that waiver last month during a meeting at the Department of Energy. But according to attendees, when pressed by the White House, they acknowledged the change would only shave off at most eight cents per gallon in gas prices at the pump and may not immediately result in rerouting of shipments to the Northeast from Central and South America. For that reason, the White House remains open to possibly curbing exports of refined products. That's according to two people 
familiar with the matter, especially if domestic supply becomes challenged. Going into the winter is a time when this could potentially happen. Of course, any urgency to take any action here has decreased in recent weeks as the price of oil has fallen on recession fears. But it is worth noting what domestic options are being studied as President Biden meets with Gulf leaders later this week. A Department of Energy spokesperson said it remains focused on bringing more refining capacity online, especially ahead of hurricane season. Sarah? Kayla Tausche, Kayla, thank you. And we'll stick with that story because earlier today at CNBC's Evolve Global Summit, I did have a chance to sit down with Chevron CEO Mike Worth. I asked him whether he thinks we've seen a peak in oil prices. Here's what he said. The tightness in supply hasn't gone away. And, uh, and so to the extent that we were to see um, China reopen fully, and we're, we're still seeing some COVID uh, uh, restrictions there, see air travel return fully, uh, there are some up legs in demand that could start to really pull hard on that supply again. And then, of course, there's the risks around this, the situation in Ukraine, uh, the sanctions, and how all of these things play out. And so uh, I would say uh, I think it's good for the economy that prices have moderated, but I, I also see the risks remaining skewed towards the upside. I also asked him about this morning's hotter-than-expected inflation report and how long he expects these kind of high consumer prices to last. We work around the world, and, um, and we see these pressures here in the U.S., certainly. We see them in other parts of, of the world as well. And we talked earlier about uh, the uh, supply response to the strong demand we've seen coming out of the pandemic. I think this is a, um, a, a, a structural element of the economy, at least here in the short to medium term, that is, is very real across uh, many, many different industries. Uh, I think monetary policy and fiscal policy uh, in some ways may have contributed to some of the things that we're seeing. And I don't think these things unwind immediately. I think they do unwind over time. But I think uh, you know, we're certainly uh, anticipating a higher level of inflation than what we've seen historically uh, in our planning process. And, um, and I think uh, it's uh, something that all companies should be, you know, I'm, I'm sure all companies are uh, rethinking uh, you know, their plans for the, you know, the next few that years. it's more entrenched here to stay, that inflation. Uh, I, I think it's proven durable to this point, and uh, I think we need to prepare for it to have um, you know, some additional runtime. Additional runtime. Mike Worth off of Chevron. Joining us now for more on today's inflation is Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adiemo. Secretary Adiemo, it's great to have you back on the show. Earlier this morning, Brian Deese, uh, economic advisor to President Biden at the White House, called today's number backward looking. Do you agree? Well, Sarah, it's great to be here with you. And I think the way this data works, as you know well, is that it's for the previous month. And since that month, We've seen some of the prices indicators coming down. Um, as Mike indicated in the last segment you had, we've seen oil prices come down slightly as well as other commodities. And I think the truth is that we want them to come down further because what we know, as Mike also stated, is this is a global phenomenon, but we need American solutions, which the president has proposed, including giving the Fed the room to do what the Fed needs to do. They have primary responsibility here for dealing with inflation. We're going to do everything we can on supply chains and also calling on Congress to take steps to reduce our deficits in order to address this challenge head on. I guess my question on, on if it is backward looking, as you say, it is last month's data and we've seen oil prices come down since then. We've seen other commodities price come down since then. 
should the Fed really pay too close attention to the to this report? Should it go even stronger on hiking rates as the market is now expecting them to do and potentially crush our economy into recession if we're starting to see evidence that inflation is thawing? So, Sarah, um, I'm not going to talk about what the Fed should do, but what I'm going to say is that what the president has said, that prices remain too high in the United States of America, and that's why we've got to do everything we can to bring them down. And as you know well, it's not an American phenomenon at all. It's a global phenomenon, and that's why we want to give the Fed the room to do what they're going to do. But it's not only something that the Fed can take action on, even though they have primary responsibility. We've got to take steps to deal with the supply issues in our economy as well. That's why the president released a historic amount of money from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's why Secretary Yellen today is in Asia working to implement the price cap, which would allow Russian energy to flow but reduce the amount of money that they make from it. And that's why the president's calling on Congress to approve a package that reduces our deficit and helps to bring down pressure on the economy and on high prices. Well, how does that price cap really work? I, I know Secretary Yellen is, is trying to sell that overseas to try to hurt Russia. Don't, don't China and India have to be on board with that as buyers of Russian oil? So, Sarah, the basic thing that China and India and other economies need to be in, on board with is paying as little as possible for Russian energy. And that's what we're seeing happen today. What we know in the marketplace is that Russian energy, or Urals as they're called, is being sold at a massive discount to those who are buying them. What Secretary Yellen is advocating for is making sure that Russia is not able to benefit from the risk premium they've introduced into the market by reducing the amount of revenue they make while allowing their Rus Russian oil to flow. And we think that countries that buy that oil should be very interested in this because it reduces the cost of energy for each one of them. What ultimately do, 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 does the White House hope to accomplish here? Because we've seen also, I know you've been working on sanctions packages. They've been, they've been extreme. And yet still, you know, the ruble has come back. The Russian economy, it's, it's, it's obviously taken a huge hit, but we, we really haven't seen a let up in this war. So, Sarah, our goal remains the same. We want to reduce Russia's revenue while mitigating the risks to our economies. And we want to reduce that revenue so they have less money to prop up their economy and to also pay for their war machine, which is conducting this unjustifiable war in Ukraine. The next step is implementing the price cap. We know that today Russia earns the vast majority of their revenues from selling oil around the world. We want to allow that oil to flow because we want to see oil prices come down so that our consumers pay less. But we also want to reduce the amount of revenue that Russia earns from selling that oil in order to make sure they have less money to prop up their economy. Accomplishing that will put them in a position where they have to make stark choices about propping up their economy or continuing to pay for their war in Ukraine. So, Mr. Secretary, now, now that we have another hot read on inflation, we're set to get a negative print, at least if you, if you trust the Atlanta Fed GDP model, on, on growth. So negative growth and sky-high inflation. How much are you guys talking and worried about stagflation at the Treasury? So, Sarah, I'm not worried about it because I spend my time talking to CEOs and small business owners. And what they tell me is that demand for their services and goods remains strong. Last month, you saw that we closed the gap in terms of the number of jobs that were lost in the private sector from the, from the COVID crisis. And now we've created more jobs since President Biden has been in office than have been created in a number of years, in over 40 years. 
and the economy has continued to grow. Industrial production is still strong. So underlying, we see momentum in the American economy, and that momentum is going to carry us forward. And I think it puts us in a stronger position than any economy around the world to deal with the high inflation that we face today. Um, you look at inflation prints in other parts of the world, they're also high, but they don't start out from the place that we start out from, which is a place of strength. Our goal is to make sure that we take steps to keep playing upon that strength to make sure the economy continues to grow and we continue to create good paying jobs. So President Biden tweeted out just in the last hour or so, Mr. Secretary, the, the chart that you, you sent us, I think we have it for you, of the price of oil and retail gasoline prices, bo both of which are declining, but there's obviously a big gap there. And he says in his tweet, time for gas retailers to pass the cost declines they're feeling in the markets onto American families at the pump. It's something that Jeff Bezos has gone after the president about. That, and, and I actually asked Mike Worth about it at Chevron today. He said most of these gas stations are owned by small businesses, independent family-run businesses. They, they own about 5% of them, and it, it doesn't work that way. They, they do track the market. So what, what is the president after here? So I think what the president is after what is, is what we're all focused on, which is doing everything we can to bring down costs for the American people. That includes making sure that the market responds in the way it should when you see fundamental price changes. It includes advocating for Congress to, price, to pass things like prescription drug price reform in order to bring down the price of prescription jobs, prescription drugs. It includes releasing energy from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And what the American people should know, what business owners and CEOs should know, is the president's going to continue to advocate for taking steps to bring down costs because we want to make sure that we continue to have a strong, robust American economy going forward. Wally Adiemo, thank you for joining me today in reaction Thanks to those numbers. Me. Deputy Treasury Secretary. Take a look at Twitter shares taking off today after filing a lawsuit against Elon Musk for ending his $44 billion takeover of the company and accusing him of driving its stock lower. We'll share the details when we come back. We've gone negative now. Even the Nasdaq giving up about a third of gains. Up next, a rough day for the airlines and the legal drama between Twitter and Elon Musk heats up. Twitter, the top performer on the S&P. We'll take you inside the market zone next. We are now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Steve Kovac is here on Twitter. And Phil LeBeau covering the airlines, not having a great session. Stocks have bounced around today. We've seen some dramatic swings. The Nasdaq is currently the outperformer, but it's given up its gains since the beginning of the hour. And we're heading south again now, down 200, Mike. It's kind of a mixed reaction yeah. to the CPI report, which did come in hotter than expected at 9.1%. Absolutely. On the one hand, um, there really was nothing within the report that was going to give you much relief on the uh, inflation data front. It's still consistent with the idea, of, given what's going on in the energy markets, that maybe it was a peak and then we might just be uh, kind of front loading a lot of what the Fed's going to do in reaction. But I, I don't know that we want to draw out real significant conclusions from the intraday action, except to say, the S&P went back toward last week's lows, didn't find a whole lot of sellers right there. We have earnings season coming up, uh, and there's been perhaps enough uh, kind of nervousness built in uh, to the market here that it can, it can live with these kind of numbers for now. Bond market volatility is way too high for any sustainable kind of advance in equities. I think that's what has to probably calm down as a first step. Right. So, so we have seen increasing odds throughout the session of a 100 basis point hike from the Federal Reserve and, and certainly higher odds that we'll see more tightening 
We're seeing Treasury yields, mixed picture, higher two-year, weaker 10-year, lots of inversion. That's why the banks are underperforming. J.P. Morgan Chase and Morgan Stanley kicking off earnings for the big banks tomorrow. Those results could be a catalyst, Leslie, for the market's next move. The market's been dominated so far by, by these moves in interest rates. What do you expect? Yeah, that's right. So analysts, the street is expecting pretty muted numbers um, tomorrow, the rest of the week for these banks. Lower earnings per share relative to a year ago, lower on the top line as well. But perhaps even more important than the actual quantitative part of what we're seeing is going to be the qualitative part. What's the color? What's the tone that the executives are going to set with regard to a recession? Because as you mentioned, you know, right now things are pretty challenging for the banks, but you could see kind of a double whammy if you get both a recession and declining interest rates in light of that recession in 2023, which is something the market is looking ahead to, if there is that kind of recession-related uh, concern from the bank CEOs this quarter looking ahead to the following year, that would not be a good scenario for the banks. So, Leslie, also it comes to, like, not all banks are created equal, obviously. <laughs> so which ones, the investment banks probably won't be as great because the capital markets have been so shut down. Which ones could see outperformance? For instance, regionals, the traders should do a little bit better. What do you think? Yeah, most of the street says regionals versus the Wall Street banks will do better. Interestingly, among the six big Wall Street banks that we tend to track closely here, there's only one that's outperforming the S&P 500, and that's Wells Fargo, which, of course, has it acts much more like a regional bank than the others, given its exposure to uh, net interest income, which benefits from a rising interest rate environment because they're able to charge more in terms of interest on their loan making, at least as interest rates are rising. So that's what you saw during the quarter. Since the quarter ended, however, you know, it's been a little bit more volatile in the fixed income markets. So that's, you know, maybe shifted a bit. But that is the one outperformer. Everything else, pretty dramatically in some cases, underperforming the S&P 500. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Look at Twitter. It's a big winner today for a change after filing a lawsuit against Elon Musk for terminating his $44 billion takeover of the social media company. The lawsuit contends Musk, quote, refuses to honor his obligations to Twitter and its stockholders because the deal he signed no longer serves his personal interests. Steve Kovac joins us. Steve, why is Twitter also accusing Musk of driving its stock lower? Yeah, that's just another excuse for Elon to kind of get out of this uh, this deal that he doesn't want to do. So basically, it's really interesting, Sarah, to kind of compare and contrast that letter we got late Friday from Elon Musk's side saying he wants out of the deal and claiming with really no evidence about this spam bot problem. And then looking at the dozens of pages in Twitter's lawsuits where they lay out point by point all the evidence, including Elon Musk's own tweets uh, and some really nasty emojis he sent the CEO of Twitter uh, uh, just uh, as as an example of him just trying to cause as much chaos as possible um, and, and paint a picture of this kind of buffoon who doesn't really take this whole deal seriously. Um, and then but to, to that point, though, Sarah, there's some irony kind of baked in here, too. They spend so much effort and time in this lawsuit uh, calling Musk unserious, a hypocrite and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, they conclude he's the best person to take over the company. So I don't know how they square that. Either way, the stock's up 8%, but still a long way from that original deal price. It's at 36.77. Steve Kovac, Steve, thank you. Also want to highlight the airline stocks because they are under pressure. After this morning, Delta beat Q2 revenue estimates but did miss on the bottom line due to higher fuel costs, rising wages, service disruption. CEO Ed Bastian did speak to our own Phil LeBeau on Squawk Fox. He vowed to fix these operational issues in the third quarter. Listen. 
We had a rough six weeks, no question about that. We're sorry for our customers. We've, we've uh, issued uh, compensation and the, the appropriate level of apology. That said, we're going to get back because we already were there. We we're there for over the last decade. We're going to get back. We're already back. And you got to prove it. Got to prove it, Phil How confident should we travelers feel at this point? Well, they've kept their schedule for the third quarter at the same level as the second quarter, Sarah. So it's not as though they're adding more flights. And that was really at the heart of the issues, not just with uh, Delta, but with the other airlines as well. They had added so many flights. And Ed Bastian talked about that this morning with me. They just got too ambitious in what they thought they could handle, like so many of the other airlines. And as a result, they've dialed it back. Look, the proof is in the pudding. We'll see how they handle the rest of this summer and as well as post-Labor Day because they expect strong demand to last beyond Labor Day. Phil the bow. Phil, thank you. Airlines, a little bit weaker, down 1.65%. Mike, you also got oil prices, which are a little firmer. And, and the airlines have rallied when oil prices have been weaker in, in recent weeks. What was the takeaway from Delta? Yeah. It's no that that's been the main uh, main driver. The, the general idea that maybe they, the airlines can bring supply and demand back into balance. Maybe they're going to be uh, a little bit less uh, kind of whipsawed by uh, by all the staff shortages. That's good news. I still don't see the group as really being kind of sustainable leadership at all. It was right at the center of what happened in the pandemic. The balance sheets are in general not in great shape because of all the capital they had to raise. So they will just be trading stocks, you know, based on uh, whether it's energy prices or really the, the feelings about the consumer in the latter half of the year. No, but on the demand side, it was pretty strong. Uh, the, some of those stocks getting hit four or five percent. Let's turn back to the broader market. We've got Crossmark Global's Victoria Fernandez with us to go into the close. Victoria, your takeaway on the CPI report, the inflation report, and, and whether it, it dictates a direction for stocks here in the next few weeks. Yeah, so Sarah, I think obviously it confirms what most people are thinking, that we're going to see these hikes for the July meeting. We're going to see hikes at the September meeting. It really comes down to what those expectations are now for that exact number. Obviously, Steve Leesman was on earlier in the show talking about how we've seen those futures um, expectations really rise, that 7,500 basis points for July. I I'm not sure that there is a... Um, I guess a, a concrete answer in regards to these, because I think when you look at the September meeting, you've got two months between those two meetings. We don't have an August meeting. And I really feel like you're going to have some counter trend things come in in regards to some disinflation. We've already seen commodity prices start to come down. You have a labor market that continues to hold its own service demand. You were just talking about airlines. I traveled this past weekend. Airports were crazy. Service demand is there. So I think you're going to be able to see something in that two-month span that maybe the September meeting allows the Fed to pull back a little bit if it so chooses. So are you buying? Are you adding to positions on, the, on, that, on that idea, which can be interpreted as bullish if you think inflation is going to come the other way and they're going to change their tune? Yeah, I mean, we think inflation is going to come down. Is it going to get to the 2% target, you know, anytime soon? No. But what is the Fed going to be comfortable with? Are they going to be comfortable with 4%? Well, if so, then we probably will reach that later this year. And so we are in buying a little bit. We're not buying full positions. We're just kind of nibbling in there. But using some of those more defensive names like General Dynamics, you look at Anthem for insurance and health care. Um, and we also like a name like Waste Management. I mean, trash is going to be there regardless of what's happening in the economy and they've got strong balance sheets. So that's what you've got to look for as earnings comes in right now. Look for the companies with quality earnings and solid balance sheets. Those will hold you over through the volatility. 
You also like American Express, which I which I point out because it's actually one of the brighter spots in today's financials trade, which all the banks are under pressure on this inverted yield curve. Amex is higher and, and has generally outperformed. It's still down 15 percent this year. Aren't they vulnerable if we see a consumer slowdown or recession? They are vulnerable, but when you look at the consumer base for American Express, um, they tend to have a higher wealth consumer base. They've been raising their dividend. They focus a lot on travel and on service demand, and we see that that's continuing to be strong. So I think when you compare it with other names within that broader financial sector, there are some positives that they can continue to lean on through volatile markets, even if we start to go into a little bit of a recession. So from that financial sector, American Express is a good name that you can have in your portfolio. Mike, I also wanted to bring up Tesla today because it, it also made some turns on, on CPI and is higher and is helping the overall market. The Nasdaq actually going positive again. What is Tesla trading on on Twitter news prospects on deal prospects or or something else? I think there was an initiation today of the stock with some favorable uh, kind of fundamental views on it. So that might have been one catalyst. I do think it would be a net beneficiary, at least psychologically, if in fact Elon Musk were not going to be buying Twitter. But it's not to me uh, trading mostly day to day uh, on all that stuff. There's been some revival in the large secular growth stocks. And I think that got a boost from the analysts. Yeah. Helping the Nasdaq, helping the consumer discretionary basket. Victoria, thank you. We'll leave it there. Two minutes to go in the trading session. Mike, Dow down 155, sort of in the middle of this wide range we've been in all day. What are you seeing in the internals? Yeah, kind of mixed uh, on the inside. Really not much of a washout day, even at the lows, and you have slightly more advancing than declining volume. Did want to take a look at the dynamic between one of the big gasoline refiners, Valero, and Dollar Tree, a very gasoline-sensitive consumer name. You see they've come right back together. Uh, that's a uh, six-month chart. You see gasoline uh, margins coming down and a little bit of relief on the low-end consumers. So that dynamic is well in play. The volatility index kind of muted, 26. It's still kind of uneasy, but not panicky as we watch, again, that bond market volatility and the wide swinging expectations for what the Fed might do, sir. Right. And we watched the Treasury yields come down, at least the 10-year and the 30-year, the dollar come down, alleviating maybe two pressure points for the market. As we head into the close here, take a look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's down 179 right now. As far as what's working and what's holding up better, you do have some of the defensive groups working a little bit better today, but not all of them, actually. You have consumer discretionary and staples as the best performing sectors in the S&P. So, there you go. It's kind of a mixed picture there. Everybody else is lower right now. Energy just turned negative. It had been positive today. The, uh, the Nasdaq outperforming all day long today, perhaps in the fact that we are seeing Treasury yields at the longer end come down, more recessionary fears. You see that with the inverted yield curve. That's hurting the banks today. Nasdaq comp is going to close down in the red. Fourth day in a row or lower for the Dow and the S&P 500, which is going out with a decline of about four-tenths of one percent. That's going to do it for me on Closing Bell. Have a great evening. Now I'll send it into overtime with Scott. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.